This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. All right, all right, all right. Would you do me a favor and uh, grab your seats? Also, if you don't have a Bible, we're going to preach from the Bible today. We always do. Uh, and we're going to be going into another book of the Bible. One thing you're going to find if you go to any redemption churches is we like to just open up the Bible and preach. Uh, we love to go through books, so we need you to get a Bible in your hand. If you don't have one, uh, we got some ushers that have some Bibles. Raise your hand. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, this is our gift to you. If you do, but you forgot to bring one today, Please raise your hand. Let us get a Bible in your hand. Otherwise, if you have your Bible or a Bible app, open up to Titus chapter number one. Titus chapter one. Um, and we're going to make a couple announcements while you are turning there. First of all, if you're new with us, well, you'll hear more about this. But make sure you fill out one of these visitor cards. We want to get to know you. Um, we're so thankful for you being here, but we want to get in touch with you. So fill out one of these, give it to the visitor tent as you leave, and there's some information that they'll give to you. One quick announcement. Every week we have uh, redemption communities that meet throughout the valley. Um, those redemption communities this week are going to be gathering together uh, at our, our, um, at our, our class this Thursday night. So this Thursday night we have our pastor, our community class that we're doing. So all the pastors will be here. And this week we're going to be going through how should we live in this political tension in the culture that's around us. We're going to be having some conversations on that. I hope that you will show up that night if you can. It's at seven o'clock. Otherwise, tune in online. We made that available for families that couldn't make it here. We don't have childcare here. So if you want to tune in online, the link will be on our Facebook page and Instagram and all of that. So make sure you get on there. Also, RSU is doing a uh, their annual talent show fundraiser. All right, please come to that. That's on April 16th. All the money that is raised that day will be going to send kids to camp. Here's the thing. We really, we really love sending these kids to this redemption camp that's in San Diego. And, uh, and so I, I hope that you will come and support that. Have your kids come, bring your money with you, buy some food, uh, b buy some stuff at the auction, watch the talent show. Uh, and, and if you can, you know, on top of your, you know, regular giving, if you want to make a donation to that, even if you can't make it that night, put it on your envelope as you're giving today. But we want to send our kids to Redemption Camp. Thank you for all the RSU leaders. Thank you to my wife for putting these all these things together. I tell you, please, April 16th, 6 p.m., please come to that. Um, those are the two announcements, but make sure you check on our website, Facebook, Instagram. We're putting out information as much as we can, so make sure you're checking those things if you want to know what's going on here at Redemption, all right? That's redemptionaz.com, and look at the Alhambra congregation, all right? All right, are you giving enough time to get to Titus, and I am so excited about preaching this, uh, this, this new book with you all, um, and so I want to make sure that you have that in front of you. Um, and, and remember, as we're reading through this, as we're studying, it's always going to be more beneficial for you if you're studying it on, uh, on your own, reading through the book. I, I challenge you to read it through. It's only three chapters. Read it through every week, the whole book. Just read through it. 
you know, get prepared, get your heart prepared to hear. My man Joe right over here is going to be doing some sign language if, if you're a part of the, yeah, I, I give him a hand, man. It's an awesome thing. And uh, we're, we're, if, you, if you're a part of that community, you want to be able to uh, see him, make sure to sit up, up close here. Here's what I, I want to start with an illustration as we're going into the book of Titus. And I want to start um, by using this illustration just to kind of get us to understand how we should uh, listen. Let me get to this right here. Here we go. Countdown. That way I don't go way over time. All right, here we go. Um, I want you to picture this. It's a kid's birthday. He's in his house. He wakes up. And his mom wants to wish him happy birthday. So she screams with excitement. She screams at the top of her lungs so the whole house can hear. Basically the whole neighborhood can hear. Happy birthday! And in that shout is excitement for the growing child that she has she's remembering all of the things that they have been through she's remembering his birth she's remembering all of that she's remembering the labor she's remembering everything and when the child hears it he's overwhelmed with love from his mother he's overwhelmed with excitement that it's his birthday he's remembering all these things he's excited about presents whatever it is there's so much excitement in that statement happy birthday except for there's other people in the house what about dad on the couch who uh hears the scream happy birthday and and instead of feeling excitement panics because he forgot to buy uh, a present for his son he actually forgot it was the birthday altogether, and he's sitting there panicking going this is not going to be good for me all the way around right so he's trying to figure out how can he go get a present how can he go get all the things that he needs he's got to pull everything together he starts planning he's panicking what about the sister in the other room who hears happy birthday and immediately is filled with uh, like uh, jealousy? I want a birthday too. I, know. I want presents. Hates her brother and instead of filled with excitement is just bitter, angry, and jealous. How about the neighbor who's next door and hears a scream? And it's muffled through the walls, but immediately is thinking, they're always yelling at their kids. I can't believe. I mean, those parents are just horrible. They're always yelling. And is angry and frustrated, questioning how good of a parent they are. Here's the thing about a statement just because a statement is made and it's made with a certain kind of heart and intention that inside of the context of the relationship of that mother and son there's excitement and joy but those who listen in to that statement doesn't mean that they have the same response it doesn't mean they hear it the same way 
It doesn't mean it hits them the same way. The same statement that was meant to celebrate happy birthday fills one with panic, the other with jealousy, and the other with anger. It was never the intention of the screamer, the mom. It's never the intention of the child. The whole intention of the conversation was to celebrate. But it didn't cause that for others who heard. You see, when we approach a text, when we approach what is being said in God's word, we have to admit that often the way we translate scripture is by how we feel when we read it versus the heart in which it is said. Or the context of the relationship in which it is being spoken. We often are the person on the couch who panics. Or the person in the other room who gets jealous. Or the person outside of the house who doesn't understand what's happening at all. But assumes they do. Because that's how they feel. You see the problem with how we listen to scripture is mostly we sit around and ask ourselves this question. How do I feel when I read this? That's our primary question. What does it mean to me? Now, although we may get there eventually, it's bad listening to start with that. Because the mother's cry of happy birthday had nothing to do to try to make you panic or get you jealous or get you angry. It had everything to do to celebrate and to rejoice over what was being done in that relationship. To remember the things that were taking place and to celebrate this child. And as you approach a text like Titus, it's important for you to be a good listener of God's word. Your first and foremost priority should know what is God's heart in what is being spoken. Secondarily, you should want to know as Paul is speaking to Titus, what's the nature of their relationship? What's the context of Paul and Titus' relationship? And what's the context of the city that they're in? And as you're listening to that context and you hear what is actually being said, then lastly, you might want to ask yourself, how do I feel when I read it? Right? Because just we're, we're about to study a book or a letter, a pastoral epistle. The nature of this text is a father, if you will, writing to his son, if you will, Titus. He calls him a dear son, and you're going to hear that in just a moment. He calls him a son because basically Paul and Titus were co-laborers of the gospel Titus was saved under God saved him under Paul's ministry they traveled around from city to city and he was discipled him and Timothy Titus and Timothy were discipled by Paul they heard all of his teachings they had the relationship they saw the miracles all the things that were taking a place in the context of that and when Paul would would travel around and he'd plant these churches and the gospel would be planted there he would leave one of his sons there to to carry on the work, Timothy or Titus. 
the nature of their relationship was close, was understanding. They knew each other. They were on the same page. See, Paul and Titus were family, if you will. Framly, that we call it, right? They were close. That's why it shouldn't be shocking to you how quickly, if you read Titus, Paul jumps straight into instruction, straight into very practical things, teaching his son in the ministry what he should do. He's left in this context. What is this context that Titus is in? Well, he's in a city called Crete. And this city is completely anti-gospel, right? Everything that is in this city is not what you're going to hear and, and believe and see. And, and, and this is the kinds of things they're living. They're living in, in this city that's completely different than what the gospel would preach. They're, they're in this very secular, secularized, pluralistic. They're worshiping all kinds of gods. This is the kind of city that they're in. To help us understand it in modern day terms, because in a couple of weeks, Pastor Wes is going to address uh, chapter 10 or verse 10 through 16 of chapter 1 in a couple of weeks. That kind of outlines the kind of context that they're in in this town. But Tim Chester modernizes it by saying, here's by taking those verses and here's what he says. He says, living the good life of the gospel is always a challenge when you live in a wider culture that defines the good life in other ways. Could you say amen to that? It is particularly hard in a culture where newspapers cannot be trusted. Politicians are corrupt, harsh, selfish, racist, and the whole culture is afraid of crime. A culture where people are reluctant to do manual work, so they leave it to migrant workers. A culture where people routinely overeat and are gluttonous. Um, I know it sounds like today, but he's actually writing about Crete in a modern day way. But you read that and you're like, sounds familiar. Sounds really familiar you start going through it and you're going check 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 and you start realizing not only is this the culture that we live in but this is what people define as the good life these are the people that are running for office that we're about to vote in these are the people that we have all around us who are saying this is the good life and we're living amongst this saying no the gospel declares something totally different nobody says amen right there i thought y'all would uh, just so you know it does declare something totally different so here's titus Amongst these people in this new church, in this culture, where the gospel has been flourishing and now he has some very specific tasks. The thing that could offend some of y'all is by reading in, you could be on the couch or in the other room or maybe across the street, and you think, man, Paul doesn't spend a lot of time like he does in Romans, kind of establishing like doctrine and beliefs. He doesn't spend a lot of time kind of going into, are we on the same page? Yeah, he did that in Romans because he didn't know anybody in Rome. He didn't know if they were on the same page. But what you have to understand, when I'm sitting with people who I have 
tons of context of relationship with. When I'm with people who know me, know my heart, know where I stand, when I'm with people who are on the same page, I don't need to give a bunch of fluff to try to make sure that they don't get offended. We're already on the same page. You already know me. You already know where we're at. We've been doing work and ministry together. Listen, when I sit with the elders, we get to work, right? We're not sitting around hashing out, do we believe the same thing? These are co-laborers. The reality is much of our lives are spent out of the context of these kinds of relationships, so we're constantly feeling alone. We never work with or walk in community enough to realize we're rehashing very fluffy, shallow things often because we're an easily offended culture. Paul can jump right in with Titus. He can jump right in. his son when I when I have instruction to give to my kids because they have context I can go right into instruction I don't need to sit there and go now you know we're on the same page I love you you love me we're a happy family no I can go do this why? Because I love you, and you know that. The straightforwardness of this book has such a huge reminiscence of, happy birthday, let's get to work, we got stuff to do. But couch people, other room people, neighbors will be offended. This is a very father-son And as we jump into this, you're going to hear this in Paul's tone. You're going to hear this in the way he addresses Titus. But this first four verses will really get to his greeting. We'll go through four verses and it's his greeting. Only in four verses is he going to greet him and establish it. And then he's going to jump right in like we will next week into some very practical living. I mean, Titus is like... Bargain, basement, good, solid teaching in three, book, three chapters. It is like all compressed. You're going to get everything here, right? It's such a good book. Because he jumps right into this kind of solid teaching. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to stand together. And the reason why we stand is because I want us to remember this is God's word. And as I'm reading, as we're following along, let's remember this is his word. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which according with accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching of which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father 
and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Lord, let these words sink deep into our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. When I'm with people who I'm close with, greetings are short. We have so much that we've already accomplished. Paul, in four verses, puts the most beautiful greeting, but it's very short. Listen to what he says to him. Remember where Titus is at. Remember who Titus is. What would I want to say to my sons or to my fellow laborers, to those who I've labored with and toiled with? What would I want to say to my family if they were in that context trying to do that kind of work? Here's what he starts with. The first thing he says in verse 1, and I want you to see this, he says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. The first thing he identifies himself as is a servant. That word might be too nice for the actual translation. It's better translated slave. First he starts with saying we are servants of the Lord. We are servants. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do as I put these slides up because I want these to sink deep into our hearts as a church. I want us to say this. Say we are servants. We are servants. Thank you. We are servants. What does that mean? What does it mean to start by introducing yourself as a servant? He doesn't come and say, I'm your father. I know what I'm supposed to. I'm, I got, I'm, the, I'm the apostle. I'm the bishop. I'm over you, right? You know this. You need to listen to me. He doesn't start like that. He comes even less than that. He doesn't even come in a place, in a posture of elevation. He comes as a slave. In our minds, slavery is completely unacceptable. I ain't a slave to nobody. I'm not a servant to anybody. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not mastered by anybody. I'm my own master. Well, you just declared who your master was. You are a slave. You see, the reality of slavery is not... This whole thing that slavery is wretched. Slavery is wretched when the master is wretched. But when you are a servant or a slave to Christ, when he has purchased you by his blood and made you his own, and brought you into his life and family and made all that is his yours and has made all and done all the work for you. When you are a slave to this, that's life. That's life. You see, he starts 
with this humbling statement. He identifies himself as a slave, and he identifies himself as one who is sent and chosen. Here's, Here's what he says. He is sent. He's an apostle. He is sent to who? He's sent to the elect. He's sent to the elect that their knowledge of the truth, which is in accord with godliness... The word slavery offends people. And another word that totally offends people, especially those on the couch, those in the other room, or those across the street, is the word election. The idea that God chooses a people causes people to panic. The idea that God is sovereign and in control causes people to panic. And if I am completely honest, it is wearisome how often I have to get into, I would call, unnecessary arguments over whether God is in control or not. I, listen, if I have to have more of those conversations, I have to literally... Walk away for a moment, dry heave, and then come back in love, right? The nonstop, the nonstop conversations of, is God in control or am I in control? Does God save or do I save myself? What do I have to do? Is God choose people? All these kinds of things and these contradictions drive people absolutely insane. Is it my works that earn my way to salvation or is it God's grace? What do I have to do? You can't be nothing. I've got to be able to do something to assure that I'm saved. What do I have to do? And the reality is people are far more comfortable with saying, I am saved. Why? Because I said a prayer, because I read my Bible, because I do these things, because this, 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 and this, I am saved. That's far more comfortable for people to then say, I'm saved because of what Christ has done and because he chose me and because of his grace. Because now I have to trust his work rather than my work. But there's this argument. If we're saved because we're chosen in this election, then people aren't going to do any good things and people won't grow and and people will take it for advantage and do sinful things. And here's what Paul says. Paul says without any contradiction, it doesn't even seem like he's wrestling with this with Titus. Like they're already on the same page. What does he say in the very same sentence? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth in accordance with what? Their good works or their godliness. All in one sentence, he says, faith, election, and good works in one sentence. And doesn't even struggle with it. We're the ones who try to separate these things. Well, if if does this happen? Does this happen? We we try to find these tensions because we're listening out that Paul is speaking this to Titus, a son in the ministry, is meant to be happy birthday, and we're panicking. Happy birthday! You're my child. I love you. We got work to do. And we're like, oh. Am I? Why does he always get presents? 
Why is he always yelling at his kids? And the reality of this is that when Charles Spurgeon was asked on this issue of are we saved by grace or our election or is it good works or what is it? He says, he saves man by grace and if man perishes, they perish justly because it's their fault. How, someone says, do you reconcile these differences or these two doctrines? And he says, my dear brethren, you never reconcile two good friends. These two doctrines are friends. They don't need to be reconciled. You're the one who has the problem. We're constantly trying to reconcile things that Scripture has no, no issue reconciling. Paul says in the same verse, here's what's going to happen. I'm greeting you, brother, for the sake of the gospel. And why is he saying this? Because I, I, I want you to hear this. He's calling him a slave. He's saying God is sovereign. He's done the work, and he's got a work for us to do. Because often when Scripture speaks of election, it's not speaking of privilege. It's speaking of responsibility. We've been called to do something. And we're constantly like, am I special? Yes, you're special and you've got stuff to do. And he's showing him this. You are chosen. You are this sovereign God. It's, you're a servant. Why would he say all these things? Well, I think it's what we would need to hear is that Paul is starting with, what, what would I want to say to you, my family? What would I want to say to my kids? What would I want them to know with a culture that tells you it's all about you and you can do anything you want? Here's a gospel that says it's not about you and you're not the center of the universe. It's about him. He's in control. You're a servant. That's good news. And he's made you a part of his family. He's brought you in and he's got a work for you to do. Here's Paul greeting Titus. Happy birthday! And what do we want to do? Well, let's talk about election. Why? Because we're not here to hear the heart of God. We are more concerned about how it hits us. This letter starts with a, it's not about you. We are servants. He's encouraging Titus, who is in the middle of real work to do as a pastor in a community that wants nothing to do with the gospel. And he's saying, when you're going out there and you're constantly being rejected and people are not go, they're defining life as another way and they're doing things in another way and you're out there living this totally contrary life and you're preaching this gospel that nobody's listening to. Remember, it's not about you you're not the one who saves people get out there share the gospel and let God do his work that's encouragement what's the second thing the second thing we see in verses 2 and 3 he says it so powerfully in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior here's what he says his second line is this we are secure in the Lord 
we are secure. Can we say that? We are secure. If there's anything I would want you to know, if there's anything Paul would want Titus to know, is this. People are losing hope because their hope is resting in all the things that they're seeing in culture, in the way they're seeing the decline of things in their life and family. They're seeing things falling apart. People are suffering. Sin is all over the place. Our culture is at a decline. Things seem to be falling apart and things seem to be hopeless. But our hope is not in that. People of God are not hopeless. We are secure in the Lord. And how do we know that? Well, verse 2 makes it really clear when he says to him, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Here's our witness. Our God does not lie. Oh, come on, church. Our God does not lie. And why is that so Shocking to a culture. Why? Because they are in a culture that makes so many promises. Their God makes so many promises and they never deliver what they promise. Isn't it amazing? The gods that we worship promise so many things and they never deliver. If you get this amount of money, you'll be happy. And then you get it and you're still not happy. Your God lied to you. You thought if my family could just be gone, you know, all the things, if I could just, if I could just get married, I'd be happy. And then you get married and you're, you're still not happy. If I could get divorced, I'd be happy. And you're single and you're still not happy. Your God's lie to you they promise things and you believe that they're going to deliver and they never do you are constantly chasing after gods that are lying to you and what does he say our god does not lie How do we know this? The very thing that he promised from the very beginning that we saw fulfilled in Christ, that we are waiting to be finally fulfilled when he returns and makes all things new. This gospel that we preach is not just a fairy tale. This is a promise that he has made. And when we look at all the things around us, when we see that we are losing hope, this is a sure sign that the gods that we have been worshiping are not delivering. But the difference between those who are watching and losing hope when the culture and all the things around them are falling apart and those who have their hope resting in Christ is that no matter what's taking place around them, their hope is built on something completely different. Their hope is in their God. Their hope is in His what? His word, you see in verse 3. Verse 3 makes it really clear. He said, and at the proper time manifested in His word through the preaching which I have been entrusted with by the command of God our Savior that Christ is the word and that Christ is the fulfillment of all 
that has been promised and that this gospel, this work that Christ has accomplished, this word has been sent and it's been placed in the mouth of his people and that that gospel is to be preached. Preaching is the sharing of this word and this word has been manifested and preaching is to bring hope. Not hope in us, not hope in the culture around us, not hope in all these things that we see, but hope in Christ. And that preaching that is Christ-centered and preaching that is word-centered is a preaching that brings a hope that rests in the work of Christ and his ability to accomplish it. Where does your hope lie? Why do you feel like you are losing hope right now? Why do you feel as if all are falling apart? Could it be that your hope is not resting in the unchanging, eternal God who does not lie, whose word through Christ he's made it real that he is fulfilled his word and will fulfill his word and that the gospel needs to be preached day in and day out third we share in a common faith can we say that together we share in a common faith first we started with saying we are what what are we we're servants. Second, we said we are what? Secure. Third, I want you to hear this. We share in a common faith because we live in a culture that tells us it's just me and Jesus and nobody else gets it. We are constantly living in this individualistic, we're swimming in this reality that it's just me and Jesus and nobody else gets it. Nobody knows what I'm going through and nobody gets where this is and nobody knows why I'm going and we live in this place of isolation. And what did T Titus need to hear from his father in the ministry? He didn't need to hear, you could do this, buck up and get in there. What did he say? I'm in this with you. We're in this together. We share in this common faith. And what does he say to him in verse 4? He says, Titus, my child in common faith, grace and peace to you. He's saying we share in this together. We are all a part of God's family. You're not alone. What ends up happening when you start facing the loss of hopelessness, when you start seeing all the things that you've been working for collapsing and they're not turning out the way, culture's going another direction, maybe the church is not getting and growing as fast as it should and he's trying to do all the things that he does. Those first four lines are very powerful. He looks at his son in the ministry and he says, look, it's not about you, son. It's not about you. It's never been about you. Don't start believing that. Isn't it amazing how we love to make things all about us? We love that. As soon as we can, we like to see, well, this is, this is, this is why, this is it, this is, it's all about me, it's all about me. We, we, we swim in that, and then he looks at him and says, look, it's not about you. You're a servant. God is sovereign. He's got a work and a purpose for you to do. <coughs> Happy birthday, son. Second, he says, look, we're secure. Don't panic. 
Don't panic. Everything looks like it's going down, but we're secure. God's got this thing. He's promised it from the beginning. He revealed it in Christ, and he's coming back to make all things new. This gospel's been entrusted to us, and we need to preach this thing because this is the only place hope is going to come from. And the third thing he says is, look, son, I'm in this with you. And you have a family and a community in that city who's in it with you. He anchors all of these very powerful gospel truths all in these four verses. Oh, sure. There could be some in this room who who hear a text like this and their hearts could be filled with panic. Oh, I forgot. Oh, man. Um, Are we good? There could be others in this room who get angry and jealous. Why not me? And there could be others who are like, man, those Christians are always yelling at each other. But that's not the heart of the text. That's not the relationship between Paul and Titus. That's not how family heard it. That's not how it was written. Church, what we need in these times, we've got to get past this whole self-centered reality that causes us to just fill our lives with fluff and people who will just say things we want to say. What we need to hear is where our hope lies, that we're secure, that we're servants that we share in this same faith. And you want to know where we find that reality is when we come to this table. Isn't it crazy that everything he put in those four verses is what we celebrate when we come to this table? The first thing we celebrate is that we've been purchased by this blood. That we're servants of a God who's purchased us. That we were slaves to sin, but this God has purchased us and paid the price and made us his children and he's given us a work to do that it's by his grace and by his work that we can celebrate this cup it's not by what I've done but by what he has done and second that we come to this table and we remember we're secure everything seems like it's falling apart and everything doesn't seem like it's going as it should be But my hope is built on this. My hope lies in the very fact that Christ, that this God who never lies, sent his son, revealed that he's fulfilled it all in Christ, and Christ has taken this work upon himself, and that he's coming again, and he's making all things new, that at this table we're remembering our security. And third thing we're remembering is that there's others who come to this same table, and we're sharing in this same faith as a family. We're not in this alone. Isn't it amazing that that body, that bread is broken and it's passed out to the body of Christ. And as they eat it, they're being nourished. But as they eat it, they're also recognizing that they're just a piece of the body of Christ. That when you come to this table, you're remembering, but you're also proclaiming. 
Scripture says when you come to this table, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. The table is only meant for family. That's why throughout history and even from the very beginning, he served it to those who were his, his chosen, his family. Pastors and leaders throughout centuries would guard the table. They would say, look, this table is only for those who put their faith and trust in him. Why would they do that? You're like, that's just rude. Everybody should be able to come. Come. Come into the family. Come, put your faith and trust in him. But if you're not in covenant with him and you're not, you're not, you're not putting your faith and trust with him and you don't want covenant with him, it would be asking you to do something that's not true of yourself. You're saying, well, is God rejecting them? That's like asking if, if a guy getting down on his knees and asking a girl to marry him is rejecting him because she has put on the spot, right? I don't know what to say. No, the guy on his knees is going to get rejected, right? He's calling you to repent. He's calling you to leave all other gods. He's calling you to put your, leave all the other things that you put your hope in and put your hope in him. The table is here, but if this is not true of you, watch the family come and eat and drink. But don't come. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.